and welcome back to Happy Porch Radio Season 6. This season, we are talking circular economy in Africa. Today, in our episode, we are joined by Kosar Khan, Karin Debeer, and Yako Kemp from Arup. We had a great conversation about the DigiYard project. This is a platform that aims to match supply and demand through embedding circular economy practices within the construction sector and to provide access to affordable quality material to low income communities. This is a project that's based in South Africa and the construction sector there really has two sides to it in terms of a formal construction industry and a much more informal sector. And that's kind of the bridge one of the many bridges that this DigiYard project is trying to build between those two sectors. They talked a lot about kind of the challenges that they face and the things that they're learning as they pilot this project. And it was really interesting to hear all about what they are aiming to do. Yes, and there were so many threads. I think we only got a tiny taster of so much going on with projects like this. So the story of starting from an innovation competition essentially within Arup, and then their work to pilot that and to work out the future as they described this inflection point of what is the future of this this project. And as you say, the really interesting challenge of doing within South Africa and how potentially that concept can be taken across multiple places in the country and beyond. And so without any further ado, let's meet DigiYard. So hi everyone, my name is Kosar Khan. I'm a renewable energy consultant. I've been working at Arab for just about seven years now. I work primarily in renewable energy, solar and wind farms, and I've always had an interest in community engagement projects, projects of social value. I'm friends with both Karin and Yaku, and we ended up working on this project a few years ago now, and it's been a really fun and and exciting journey. So I'll hand it over to Karin. Hi, everyone. I'm Karin Debeer. I'm an architect by education. I joined Arab in 2014 as a sustainable building specialist and I've always been quite interested in building materials reuse, trying to see, you know, how far you can extend the lifespan of a material creatively, but then also to the benefit of society. Yes, I'm very excited to be a part of this project and I'm excited about the future of it. Hi, my name is Jakob Kemp. I led the Arab Sustainability Team in South Africa from 2011 to 2018. And that's when this project started, you know, really got incubated, was back in 2017. And then in the middle of 2018, I left to our Hong Kong office to focus more on Arab's digital transformation. Um, I've spent three years there and I'm now in, in London in the UK IMEA Digital Hub, still focusing on all things to do digital within Arab, but sort of also still having that connection back to sustainability and back to South Africa and seeing how can I combine those two things. Wonderful. And welcome to Happy Forge Radio, all three. Um, really excited about this conversation. So let's talk a little bit about what the project is. So we've got um, the three of you doing working in Arab in South Africa. What is DigiYard and where did it start? Well, I can discuss how it started and then maybe 
Kosar and Karen can talk a bit about the, more the details of, of what it is. It started back in 2017 when Arup launched a design competition. And the parameters was quite broad. And it said, you know, try to focus on something sustainable, try to focus on something digital and come up with, with an idea. And at that time, I was doing data analytics course in Arup. And so I wanted to solve all problems, you know, digitally. And Karen was doing some really good work in our sustainability team, looking at recycling materials on projects. We were doing some interesting work at the V&A waterfront with that. But still, there were some limitations in the work we were doing was sort of focused just on, on projects. And we were also working on the 100 Resilient Cities program, where we were really you know, seeing firsthand, you know, some of the issues in Cape Town and South Africa's general where, you know, there's a housing crisis. And, you know, these three things sort of came together in this competition where we wanted to take some of the things we were doing in the formal sector and trying to recycle materials on site, see how we could, you know, take some of that and do the recycling, in, you know, in the informal sector and take some of that materials from the formal sector into the informal sector and do that in a more digital way. And, you know, we literally just submitted like one page, a one page idea around those three concepts. And then I think we won the competition to become second. Anyway, we were given some money to take that idea forward. And it sort of just kept on going from there. So that's sort of a brief introduction of where it started. But I think, Karen, Kosar, maybe you can talk a bit more about what the big idea is. Well, from my side, as Yaku mentioned, we were doing quite a bit of, you know, reusing materials um, on our projects kind of work. And, you know, all the projects we worked on, we tried to encourage contractors to reuse materials as much as possible. And we had small successes. Like on the one project, the contractor, they kept all the insulation off cuts and then donated it to the local animal welfare shelter when they could then insulate their kennels for winter. But it was quite a lot of work to, you know, try and get all these people to collaboratively reuse materials and, like, you know, store it and then speak to whoever's willing to take it. And so us, you know, making phone calls and writing emails, it, it wasn't really scalable and so that's how, you know, we, we thought, okay, an app would really help make this something that we can roll out and not necessarily only on one project or multiple projects and maybe multiple locations. I'll hand over to Kosor now. Yeah, I think Yaku and Karen summarized it quite well. We started off, you know, as an idea in 2017 and and now a few years later, it's kind of just the projects continued. And I think that's because a lot of people have seen the value in the project and the potential that it has to scale. And whereas we started off doing things in a very manual way when we tested it, when we ran the pilot, it was a lot of us doing physical meetings with people on site and facilitating material exchanges and doing phone calls. And we actually use WhatsApp for our first pilot phase where we, we added people onto a group and we would, you know, upload pitches and we'd price pitches and we'd facilitate the exchange from the beginning right till the end. And so the longer term vision for the project is for everything to become automated and efficient and streamlined and, and that will be able to, you know, to enable the project to be scaled and to, to have an impact on a much bigger scale. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, in the beginning there was some key assumptions, you know, we needed to test, you know, is there material available? Can people then use that material, you know, in the informal sector? Can we make the material move, you know, from the formal to the informal sector? And what are some of the issues around that? You know, we didn't need a big digital platform to test those ideas and validate them. You know, we just needed something simple like WhatsApp to really get an understanding of what, you know, of those assumptions and and will it work. And, you know, it's been quite successful, but WhatsApp and, and having WhatsApp groups, that's not scalable. And so the next step is, well, how can a digital platform help us to actually scale this up? and really start moving big quantities of, of material from the formal to the informal sector and make a difference. Yeah, there's so many themes, there's so many sort of threads there that are really interesting to pick up. So just to be really clear, the core idea is that idea of waste or what would be waste from the formal building environment being then reused in less formal building environments. Is that like the, if I was to sort of pick out one key element, would that be it? Or would you describe it in a different way? No, I would agree with that. So some of the threads that I'm really interested, one is the sort of the entrepreneur, the sort of competition that you described that kind of, that was the seed or the catalyst for the idea. So I'd like to come back to that. But from your own point of views, and you touched a little bit on your backgrounds there, I guess, what was the motivation? <laughs> are you looking at this saying, okay, this is an excellent sort of cool little project, or are you looking at this as saying, this is a real difficult problem to, you know, what was the, what made you go, okay, we're going to put this together and then we're going to continue to drive it forward and to test it out with, uh, as you said, the sort of validating the idea? I think from my side as an engineer, I'm problem solving is what I do and, and what I like to do. So, you know, initially that idea of how can digital, you know, solve this problem, problem was quite, you know, quite interesting to me. But obviously, having worked on, on the sustainability side, you know, there's also another aspect, you know, about how do we make a better place where we live and, and how do we shape that. And it's sort of those two things that quite interest me. And also just having fun along the way, you know, learning new things, as you say, being a bit more entrepreneurial, which working for a big company, you know, isn't always that easy. So it was, you know, learning new things was also quite interesting for me. For me, it was the social aspect of it. In our day-to-day, we saw a lot of waste in the construction industry. And, you know, a lot of our work, a lot of our sustainability work was in the formal sector. And, you know, all these perfectly good materials would end up going to landfill. And there are reasons for that. But for me, I make furniture in my free time. And so I could always just, I could see the value in all these materials. And I just look at it from a furniture perspective. But there are so many people in South Africa who are either homeless or their houses are just completely inadequate. You know, there's a lot of news about that regularly with our floods and our fires and all the rest of it. Yeah, and so for me, it was about how can we use all these materials that are going to landfill to help people upgrade their houses. That was my key driver. But there were a few logistical concerns around that that we had to get around. So you started to talk about the pilots. It'll be interesting to hear about that. And I'm particularly interested in kind of bringing it to life with some examples. Yeah, sure. So there was the pilot study that we did, I think it was in 2018, where 
together with a few local NGOs. We started a group of local contractors and local NGOs on WhatsApp. And we used to work a lot with, and we still do, with a contractor in South Africa that's a very large contractor. And they were always very keen, you know, to support this idea because, you know, it's it's good for them also to just recycle more because actually sending materials to landfill is expensive for them. There's the landfill cost, there's the transport cost. So it was also in their best interest. There's that plus, you know, they also have this social drive where they also want to, you know, just help people upgrade their homes in whichever way they can. And so on this WhatsApp group, the contractor would list materials that are up for grabs. There was one day where they had all these solid timber floorboards, very good quality, that they'd just taken out of a building that they were renovating. And I think it was a day or two later that a contractor from an informal settlement came with these, in South Africa, you call it a bucky, like a little pickup truck. So he came with his bucky and he picked up all the floorboards and he sent us pictures of what he made with it. So he redid flooring in a client's house. So he generated a bit of income for himself. And with the offcuts, he he built himself a table. So that was very encouraging to see how quickly, you know, we were able to send materials to someone who could actually use it. And the other thing is that he was willing to pay for it, which showed us that, you know, like this is something that can actually support itself. Yeah, he was just thrilled. It was very encouraging to see all of that. Another logistical concern that became apparent to us was storage because there was another case where there were other materials and people couldn't collect it soon enough and so we did see that storage would be an important aspect. So when we initially started off we did a lot of you know desktop research and we had our own ideas around what we thought the problems are and what where we thought the solutions could be and we understood that we were coming at it with what would be called office solutions. So we did a lot of stakeholder engagement and we spoke to lots of NGOs in the space and people working in housing upgrades and also construction companies. Karen was had a good relationship with one of the environmental managers. So we spoke to them and there's a local organization, the Craft Design Institute that was running like incubators for small scale builders, teaching them how to build better and build safer and how, and they were just doing a general mentorship program. So Karen again had networks in this craft design institute. And so we tapped into that and we we started speaking to them to get us, you know, uh, more in touch with the local communities and areas where we were not actually, that wasn't our strong point. So the construction industry definitely was. We had a way in there, Karen and Yaku working in sustainability at the time. So we had access to all these different types of people. And so we had a brainstorm session. And so prior to this brainstorm session, we were trying to work with the NGO to kind of get material exchanges done. 
and we had access to timber and a very like large pile of bricks and a few other random items. And we tried to connect it up with this NGO in Cape Town that was working with incremental upgrades of homes. And we had the material for a good few months and it just didn't move. The guy was always had different reasons why he couldn't collect the material. And then eventually we, we lost the bricks and we then just had the timber. And so we had this brainstorm session with community builders and with the construction sector, with NGOs and with other partners involved in the project. And the very next day from having this brainstorm session, we established this WhatsApp group. And one of the guys that's a carpenter at the brainstorm session ended up being our first customer. And he came like the very next day to collect these two truckloads of timber that we had access to. And we sold it to him for a fairly like cheap price because we were just wanting to do a proof of concept for, you know, the people will be willing to pay. And that was our very first exchange. And we were super excited about it. And then we had this group of people that we could now make material available to. And so that was kind of a big lesson for us as well, was that we were talking to the wrong people in terms of only wanting to focus on NGOs. We just thought it was easier for us at the time to work with, you know, an established registered organization rather than working with community members. But actually the need wasn't there and the driver wasn't there. And that's why the material wasn't moving. But once we had this group of people from the community, we started then moving materials much more quickly. So we had that truckload of timber, which was the very first exchange. And the guy, we kept in touch with him and he showed us pictures of how he floored someone's home with it. And he built a big table and he sent us pictures back. So that was great for us to see what the material was used for. And then we, yeah, and then after that, we basically did some, you know, tonnages of cement and sand. And there were a few other different material exchanges that we did and we were able to record and get information from. So the pilot really, yeah, we learned a lot through the pilot. And yeah, we basically, if we didn't start accessing communities directly, I think we might have ended up like with many months gone and, and not having moved any material. Yeah, I was just going to say thank you for sharing that experience. I think when Barry and I talk to entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs through this podcast, it's always great to hear how their learning process went, because it tends to be the kind of crucial part of of these big projects, you know, as those first few months and those pilots where the real learning comes in. You talked at the beginning, all of you, a lot about scalability and how, you know, this project started with kind of a manual process that you realized wasn't going to be scalable and wouldn't be able to expand. Could you talk a little bit about the extent of the problem, particularly, you know, in the construction industry and also in the South African context of a kind of excess material or waste material on site? It's a difficult one, but Kosa, you did a bit of research. I just don't have the numbers in front of me, but you did do a bit of research to understand, because obviously what we want to do is, you know, ultimately if we do going to scale is we want to understand what, how big are the supply side, how much material will we be able to get made available to move into the informal sector. And so we did some research on that, and Kosa led most of that research to understand that you know, that market. And then also on the informal side, trying to understand, you know, how big is that market? What are the need on that side to really try and understand, you know, how big we potentially go first in Cape Town, then, you know, moving from there to other places where Arab has got offices in South Africa, like Durban and Gauteng, and then, you know, potentially from there, see how that model can work outside of South Africa and other places where we have offices and there's a similar need. But I'm going to hand over to Kosart, you know, if you do have 
you know, more figures on what that is. Yeah, I mean, I also don't have it at the top of my head, but in terms of like, you know, the construction and demolition sector, I think it's about, we say it's about 30%, I don't know, yeah, there's like, I'm not sure if it's about 30%, we said of like profits go into like waste management for construction companies. And we know also that they make up the largest, you know, contributor of greenhouse gas emissions. And in terms of landfills, typically, they also contribute the most significantly to landfills. And South Africa, like that context is not very much different from the global context. So, you know, we have a similar issue where we have lots of landfills closing up soon and reaching capacity and there's lots of material that comes. We can't give you like exact figures in terms of tonnages, but from some of the research that we've done, there were significant amounts that were coming from the bigger construction industries. And in terms of the informal sector, yeah, we just had a meeting a a day or two ago with the Craft Design Institute, who is our partner to the local uh, communities. Um, And I'm not sure if she she mentioned about like over 300,000 homes in Cape Town would be, you know, able to use materials from the sector. So the the demand side is just is is extremely huge. And also on the construction sector side, and where we also saw, although our initial focus was specifically the construction sector, there's also the film industry that Karen can talk to more that she has insight in. And they, we were approached also by Cape Town Film Studios sometime this year, and they were also giving us like figures of the amount of you know content of sets that go to landfill that they would like to kind of actually more responsibly get rid of instead of landfilling them. And there's also hardware stores. We had a chain of hardware stores that's owned by MassMart that also told us like a really crazy figure um, you know per month in tonnages that goes to landfill of slightly defective material. And they have about 54 stores in South Africa. And so there's a very big scale of materials to tap into. And then equally, you know, in the for the housing sector. But also, I think, yeah, I don't know if Yaku can also talk a bit more to this about the fact that the material would be able to go to low-income sector at a subsidized cost. We'd still basically make a material available in general to the public. And the cost of higher value items then could subsidize the, you know, the cheaper items lower income sectors so it wouldn't just be that specific market like we just it would be a general it will be open generally so we do believe that they you know as people become more conscious of using you know buying new materials and people are becoming more you know environmentally conscious the demand would be there for people to want to use secondhand materials so yeah i can give it to karen maybe you can talk about about the film industry and other avenues for materials yes well again um Incredible amounts of waste. I've got two family members in the film industry and a, and a few friends, um, a few maker friends who build sets. And they build these incredible sets. And, I mean, it's like nicer than my apartment. <laughs> and then um, once the film is over, it just goes straight to landfill. Nothing happens to it. And, again, you know, these sets can also be someone's home. So that's definitely a big resource that we can tap into. And there are a few sustainability-minded organizations within the film sector in South Africa. And so there's also a willingness to participate, you know, as Kursar mentioned. Yeah, so there are a lot of materials in South Africa that go to waste that can be put to good use. Yako, do you want to talk a little bit about the business model side of it and also the on the demand side? 
Yeah, you know, I think you already said some of that. We do see there's value in this material, even in the informal sector, getting them to pay for it. And as Kosar also mentioned, looking at some of the materials that is of higher value, moving that in, you know, into the craft industry where, you know, we could get more money. And that's sort of the main driver. We do see from a construction side of things, construction companies definitely be willing to donate the material for free because they do, you know, they do have to pay a lot of money for that to be put in landfill. And as Kosar said, that's about 30% of their profit that goes into that. And then we are looking at some interesting other ideas of making money beyond that in the transport side. You know, we know transport is an issue to move the materials. And we were thinking about, you know, having, taking a, you know, a platform, a digital platform, if we facilitate that transport, taking a bit of that money as well to the idea of having some, you know, intelligence skips and that being part of the platform as well, where we can generate some money, where the skips are being used on site and contracts filling that up. And so, yeah, so trying to see, look at different ways of actually making money and getting an income from this. That's really interesting. And it's great to hear that people are kind of reaching out to you and saying, we don't want to be wasting all this material. What can we do with it? You know, you mentioned the film industry specifically. And yeah, I wonder if you can speak a bit more to how this kind of idea of wasting less and maybe also initially generating less waste as well as passing the waste on in a responsible way, how that whole idea is developing in South Africa, how it's being received and what your hope is for that mindset in the future. Yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and then I'll hand it over to Karen and to Yaku. So like Yaku mentioned, there's gate fees associated at landfill and there's transport costs associated, you know, as well with disposing of materials. So there's a financial incentive, but there's also a big incentive for, and I mean, we do have extended producer responsibility acts, you know, being enforced slowly in South Africa, like they're all coming to the fore. They're not really heavily done at the moment, but the construction and demolition sector is one of those that will be subject to these types of, you know, policy policies or these regulations that will force, you know, companies to do things differently. So there's different drivers. And then there's also, yeah, so I mean, people are open to it. For, like from our experience of working with this construction company's environmental manager, she from a sustainability perspective, that was her driver, I think, in wanting to be part of the project and, and to take it forward. So, yeah, whereas, you know, other people, it might be financial, but in terms of like bigger companies, like we mentioned the hardware stores that's owned by MassMart. So they have, you know, these net zero climate targets. And by 2030, like there's a lot of like pressure being put onto these corporates for having a better image. And so I think it's also filtering down here in South Africa, whereas the timelines actually, you know, it's not as soon as they are like in, I think in the US, they had a, a much closer target, but like the South African branches of their stores that are owned, have like maybe a five year later target. So, but they are filtering down here and there are people that are very getting more interested in wanting to do things sustainably. And so I think that's the angle that the film sector also came at it with. Well, that's how we, I perceived it was that, you know, it was from more of a, a social responsibility and a environmentally conscious, you know, than it was actually to do with cost. Because my assumption is that, they, you know, money is not really an issue on the, the, on the film sets to kind of dispose of the materials. It's more to do with the messaging, I guess, that comes out of it. And then we've also had 
had sustainability managers from the city of Cape Town's education department that also approached us. They were looking to kind of, they have annual like build programs where these schools get rebuilt. I'm not sure exactly how it's done, but they have a set of buildings that get demolished every year and, and get rebuilt. I guess it probably rotates as it's needed. And so they basically have a lot of materials that come out of these buildings and they get they purchase brand new materials and they'll build something from scratch. And so their sustainability department was very interested in salvaging those materials that come out of these projects. Again, yeah, from a sustainability perspective. And they also saw that there could be some social benefit that comes out of it as well. Like in South Africa, we have a lot of these townships and shacks and these informal settlements or whatever you'd like to call it. So that's kind of, you know, that awareness is there. And so there's where people see that there's opportunity to kind of link the two. They seem to be quite open to it. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think we're probably in a good space now, timing wise, maybe for the project as well. I don't know if Karin or Yaku want to add to that. Yeah, just in terms of figures, if you look at the South African State of Waste Report of 2018, they estimate that 5 million tons of construction and demolition waste was generated in South Africa in 2017. And of that, only about 5% get recycled. And if you then look at at the city of Cape Town and what they charge for uh, construction waste to go to landfill, that is about 500 per tonne. It's the highest in the country of the big metropolitan areas. And again, that's, you know, set to increase by, you know, 12, 13% over the next few years, year on year. So, you know, you are talking about a lot of money that are being spent sending material to landfill. And therefore, there's a big incentive for the construction sector to divert, you know, financial incentive to divert the waste away from landfill. And so, you know, I think for them, that is one of the biggest drivers. You know, and down from that, some of the people that we work with, and specifically as Gosar and Karen mentioned, the environmental manager for the big construction company that we work with, you know, they're sort of more driven and on the, the social side of things and the benefit that can bring to communities. And so there's there's different drivers at different levels, I think, at the, you know, in these organizations. I think there's also, and you know, Emily, you touched on, um, you know, how people can sort of work on their attitude or how people build in South Africa. And I think there's a big sort of use and dispose attitude. One of the things in the construction industry that annoy me a lot is the idea of a tenant fit out and how it's typically done where they would just they would use sort of cheap composite wood and then just glue it onto a wall and then five years later it's time for a new fit out and then that just gets ripped out and because it's glued on it breaks and then it just gets thrown away and so I think you know there are two sort of aspects of the way we think about building that need to change the one is how we build so do we think about what's going to happen with this material at end of use can we recycle it can we or can we donate it and then building accordingly so perhaps spending a little bit more money on a more durable material thinking about disassembly at the end of it and then thinking about who can use it after me not just how do i recycle it but you know how to really extend the life of each material yeah, that's a really important sort of context of, of all those things you've talked about there of where DigiHeart fits in, like the multiple different motivators and incentives and, and sort of bringing those together for reusing some of that would-be waste otherwise. And then, Karen, as you described, the sort of 
rethinking the whole system. So with that in mind, what's the next steps? What do you need for DigiR to like, what are your plans for the immediate and for the longer term future? Right, Gos, are you sort of in the thick of that at the moment? Yeah, so before I just get into that, I mean, in terms of the project's longer term impact, we did want to, you know, on the one hand, we did want to see people building better, building safer and, and having access to better quality material. And then when it comes to the construction sector, we do have as part of our, you know, impact plan, like that is something that we do want to work on or have as a longer term goal is to have that behavior change around how materials handled and valued, like just as Karen mentioned, where that attitude is very blasé at the moment. And she talked about disassembly also. And so one of the things we saw during the pilot was we had access to lots of glass in a high-rise building. And they told us that the contractor told us we could take it, but it wasn't practical in the timeline to remove the glass. But had we just given been given more time or, you know, if people had thought about it, in advance, you know, how could you salvage this expensive glass instead of just recycling it? It's something that could have been done. So yeah, longer term, even though that would mean, I guess, getting less material through the platform, if it was able to kind of improve efficiencies or behaviors and around less wastage, that would be a win for the project. And something that we also talked about very early on in the project was how do we get data out of the platform and how do we use that data then to help people to inform what they do going forward. And, you know, something we talk to construction companies about is like, would they be interested in, you know, a detailed report at the end of the year that shows them exactly how much of materials like went through the platform and then they could go back and have a think as to why did so much of X, Y, or Z, you know, material go through and are there ways that they could waste less so that they could, you know, retain more or put more back into new buildings or, or retrofits or whatever the case is. So, yeah, we have like big aspirations in terms of what we'd like to see change on both sectors and how we'd want to do that through the platform. And then in terms of next steps, so we're currently at the stage at the moment of, you know, we've just had a meeting yesterday with our some part local partners that we have with us on the project and we're trying to get one of them has offered to incubate the project for the next two years so we had put together a two-year implementation plan to like further test certain assumptions and solutions that we need for the project and some of the main ones are transport and storage and how do we make that happen and so we want to basically yeah get a home for the project to be done full-time because it's currently not a full-time project within Arab. So we believe that once a project has, you know, a full-time team and resources and funding that, you know, then we'll really be able to see the project come to life. And then, so funding I mentioned, so that's the second bit. So, you know, we have partners that we have great relationships with, then we have all this work that we've done and this information that we've collated. And so Arab is basically not going to be the people that are going to be running it on the ground. So we've found a home now to incubate the project. And so the next step for us would be to get funding for that incubation to happen. A lot of the organizations in South Africa don't have funding and resources, you know, easily accessible that would be able to take something like fund something like this for a full two years. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And we've also been having a lot of discussions around what's the legal entity that DigiArt exists as? Is it a social enterprise? Is it an NGO? So, yeah, I guess that's kind of where we're at. I don't know if Karen or Yaku can add on to that more concisely to say yeah, exactly where we're at right now. I think you summed it up well at this inflection point, you know, where we want to start looking at scaling this up. We've done our, you know, we've 
tested the assumptions and we're keen just to get going on and see if we can, you know, if we can really scale this up, see if this, you know, is long-term financially viable to do. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's such a short time period, a short conversation like this to get a little sort of insight into which is what is obviously both a big topic, a big challenging topic, but also the project and a lot of the work you've done and and the journey of learning, like something that's a real theme for this podcast is how the technology, you know, we can't jump straight to technical solutions. You need to do that learning and the the sort of proper lean startup thinking about, okay, let's do a WhatsApp group and really learn the reality of it and then talk, work how to scale it up. There's that thread and there's the thread that Emily that you brought out about the changing the systems the systemic thinking about and that broad goal that you've described there for DigiArd all of you so I really hopefully we've kind of given the listener a little taster for all of those things and just finally for those listening who want to find out a little bit more about the project or to reach out to you where should they go? So we have a research article that's published on research.arab.com. So you'd be able to find out a little bit more about the project on that web on the article that's in that link. And then I suppose they could just reach out to us directly if they have any questions or comments or yeah, if they're interested to know more or you know, we're always looking for people that are, have interesting ideas to collaborate with. And yeah, we'll be happy to chat. Thank you so much. As always, we'll share show notes, the full transcript of this episode and the links to that research article on happyporchradio.com. Thank you, all three of you. Really appreciate your time for joining us today. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Happy Porch Radio. Hope you enjoyed it. You can hear more of our episodes at happyporchradio.com. You can also get in touch with us there. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any ideas or if you want to talk to us about something. We'd also love it if you can share these podcasts, review, rate, tell your pals, tell your neighbors, tell everyone. Tell your dog. Tell your dog. (laughs) Listen along with the whole family. And my name's Barry and I founded HappyPorch.com and Happy Porch fund and support the podcast. At Happy Porch, we do technology and software development for purpose-led businesses. And we are particularly excited about the role of digital as an enabler for the circular economy. So if you're working on solutions to the big problems we face today, problems like climate change and biodiversity loss and global inequality, then let's connect. Visit happyporch.com and get in touch. And my name's Emily and I am a coach, a facilitator and a podcaster. My projects focus on personal development, innovation for a better world and connecting with nature. My latest podcasting adventure alongside Happy Porch Radio, is exploring the world of carbon removal. Find out more about this and everything that I do at emilyswaddle.com or you can get in touch with me at hello at emilyswaddle.com.